A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com dot com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's better help com slash sacred text. Chapter seven, the ministry of magic. Harry woke at half past five the next morning as abruptly and completely as if someone had yelled in his ear. For a few moments, he lay immobile as the prospect of the hearing filled every tiny particle of his brain. Then, unable to bear it, he leapt out of bed and put on his glasses. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. And that was Erica who won at Trivia Night at camp and so delightfully read us in this week. She did great. So Matt, this week's Every Flavored Bean conversation is inspired by the moment in the chapter in which Harry sees that in the fountain in the Ministry of Magic, there's a lot of coins and there's a little sign that says all of the proceeds from this fountain go to St. Mungo's. And Harry thinks to himself, if I am set free and allowed to go back to Hogwarts, I will put 10 galleons in. And that is, ironically enough, called magical thinking. And so we will each tell a story about some form of magical thinking that we do or superstition that we engage in and also whether or not we think that this magic works. Because Harry does get off. And do we think that this is why? Because he makes a deal with the fountain. I never considered that. I, this is this is an interesting follow-up to the first question. Okay, yeah, great. I'm, I'm really excited. excited for our bean. And everybody, you can hear that and so much more by going to patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text. We really appreciate all of our patrons. And also, if you're a patron and you're also coming to our live show on October 12th, there's going to be a patron-only VIP event after. I'm really excited for that. 
And of course, everyone, remember, please to review us on Apple Podcasts. And you can also subscribe for ad-free episodes on Apple Podcasts as well. Vanessa, you are going to tell us a story about visibility this week. I sure am. So Matt, as you know, your brilliant wife and I just flew back from leading a Harry Potter pilgrimage in England just a few days ago. And she and I had to take the train from Bingley to London in order to catch our flight out from Heathrow. And we get to the train station and it is just like there is luggage chaos going on on this train. People have used the like large luggage area to store like smaller luggage, like backpacks and carry on bags. And the train conductor was losing his mind about this. We got on the train and there had already been several stops before us. So we were like, oh, where should we put our bags? And he was like, well, if other people weren't ignorant and inconsiderate, there would be space for your bags. And we were like, oh, no, I didn't I didn't know. Like, this has been bothering you for years. And I'm so sorry. And so he, like, went down the aisle and asked people if they had small bags that were in the large bag compartment. And if so, could they please move them to above the seats? So Colette and I find places to put our luggage and we go to sit down and we realize that our seats are across the aisle from each other and it's easier to chat if we're sitting next to each other. So I sit next to Colette and think, if this is someone else's assigned seat, they will tell me and we can rearrange or they can just take my seat one seat over, right? Like we decide that this is a fair risk to take in the world, that someone can sit one seat over from where they thought that they were going to sit. Risks were taken, Matthew. Having gotten to know your conductor a little bit, this is, <laughs> this is a bold choice. <laughs> this is a bold choice. Okay, let's hear. I feel like Chekhov's gun has just been presented. What's going to happen? Well... We're on this train and it's, you know, chugga chugga choo chooing down a path. And it is sort of a, a windy train. It's just a little windy. And we go around a turn and a piece of luggage that has been put up because people are now considerate and informed flies across the train and hits a man who's sitting like catty corner across from me who has a fresh hot cup of tea in his oh. hand and the tea explodes all over him the whole train car right it's just like <gasps> and he is like upset and is like whose luggage is that that flew and then he points to the man sitting across from me and he goes you it's your bag and then the man turns to me and points and says, it's because you're in my seat. Whoa. <laughs> Vanessa, effectively, you threw hot tea on a stranger. Yep. <laughs> I will say, after all these things were, like, blamed, everyone sort of stayed calm for long enough and, like, you know, made sure that this man was okay, that, like, tempers cooled and the tea cooled and he wasn't severely burnt. He was, you know, shaken up. And Colette and I looked at each other and like clearly the actual problem here was the design of the overhead space. There's no lip on it. Like bags can just fly. Like this is an infrastructure problem that happened. But I tell this story on the theme of visibility. 
Because this should have been a situation in which I was invisible. I was a spectator. I was far enough away from the man who'd been hit by the T that like someone else was helping him. I was not going to be helpful. It wasn't my bag. I hadn't asked anyone to put the right. There are many characters in this scene. There's the conductor. There's the man whose bag it was. There was the man who was hit. There was the woman who was helping. And I was supposed to be a spectator. And yet I suddenly became visible because someone invited me in. And it was a very strange feeling to be like, oh, I'm not in this moment, to being like, oh, apparently I am in this moment. And I think that when we are in public spaces, that is often the case. We're standing and we're wondering, is this a moment where I want to make myself visible? Is this a moment where I want to make myself visible in order to advocate for someone else, in order to advocate for myself, in order to get what I need? Or is this a moment where I should actually stay as invisible as possible? Because this isn't about me. Yeah. And I think the other thing that it makes me think about is you also never really know to whom you're visible, right? Because right. the way you told the story, like the person who got hit with a hot tea, you were invisible to them. Totally. But the reaction of the person across from you, you had been visible to that person. The whole sounds time. Sounds like the whole train ride. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the whole time, right? And so like, you never really know like who you're showing up to and for and, and how you're showing up. I, I did then say, yeah, that that's the lesson here is that this is my fault. <laughs> <laughs> and then I offered to switch seats with him. And he was like, no, I yeah. like facing forward. No, that horse is safely out of the barn. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Vanessa, we're nothing if not critics of power and yes. institutions, right? I feel like where where was the conductor recognizing that he had been entirely too vigilant about small items being Nowhere. put up? Nowhere. The... See? Thank you for listening to me process this story out loud. <laughs> It was high drama, guys. It was it high, sounds like high drama. drama. Matt. Yes. We're going to become more and more visible to each other through our 30-second recaps. Can you please remind the people what happened in this chapter? I can try. Okay. On your mark. Get set. Go. So Harry wakes up and he's very anxious and then he goes down for breakfast and Tonks and other people are there and she's very tired and uh, he can't really eat much of his breakfast and then Weasley, Arthur says, let's go and they go and they don't do any magical thing. They get on the tube and it's very interesting to Arthur and they get into a phone box and the phone box asks them questions and they go down and it's a very interesting place with a very disturbing statue and then they get on the elevator and go up and, and Perkins is like, oh, you gotta go down and then so they go down very fast and they run and they run and they run and then Arthur's like, I'm sorry, I can't go in there with you and he sends Harry in by himself. That was amazing. Thanks. I think maybe like the the time between episodes now, the extra time between episodes, I have time to recover, gather my wits about me. Uh-huh. And the 30-second recaps get a little bit a little bit more coherent. All right, Vanessa, let me count you in. Thanks. Three, two, one, go. So we see the world through Arthur Weasley's eyes, and the tube is so exciting, and it's even adorable when things are out of order, because look at Muggles, they're just trying so hard, and he's never been a guest to the Ministry of Magic before, and it turns out that he has to dial this code that he remembers, which is very impressive, and it's you, it, the numbers mean magic, and then he goes in, and he watches Harry weigh the wand, and he's just like never done any of this before, and it's very exciting for him, and then there's a stressful moment where he realizes that something is going on with the hearing i did want to mention eric i forgot to mention eric, in eric. My recap. i was hoping i'd mention eric <laughs> thanks eric so vanessa one of the things i was thinking about as you told your story is just like it's interesting like who you're visible to and why and how you become visible 
to others? Like, you didn't become visible to the guy who got tea knocked all over him until the guy across from you pointed at you and said, it's her fault, <laughs> right? Like, and it just makes me think about, like, what are the things which cause us to come into view of another person? And there's a really interesting and kind of paradoxical example of this in this chapter. So, you know, as we clearly explained in our 30-second recaps, Harry and Arthur go to the Ministry of Magic today. This is a kind of a, a chapter where we're being prepared for Harry's hearing in the next chapter. And we get to see, we're introduced to the Ministry of Magic. We get to see, it becomes visible to us. I think we'll, you know, we'll say more about that, about what it looks like and who it appears to and who it doesn't. But we get to Arthur's office, and Arthur's office is kind of small, and his department, it seems like, is a less visible department. Among the other departments, there are other ones which are bigger and more important, maybe. His is, you know, not even as big as the broom closet, the, the, the narrative says. And he doesn't get a window. And he doesn't get a window. Which seems like an intentional insult because it's all underground. Like, all, all the fake. windows are fake. They could easily put in a window, so like, right? It seems like someone's making a point about how invisible That's Arthur right. is. And then we, from Harry's perspective, we get kind of a survey of the office, which has two desks. Perkins isn't there quite yet, Arthur's coworker. But there's a family photo on the desk. But the first thing Harry notices about the family is that it appeared that Percy had walked out, right? Percy is missing. And we know that there is this developing, continuing estrangement between Percy Weasley and the rest of the Weasley family. And there's a weird way in which, you know, there's that old phrase uh, that a thing can be conspicuous by its absence, right? Like, there's a way in which Percy's absence in the photo brings him to mind more immediately and more clearly to Harry than if Percy yeah. had just been standing there, right? The absence of Percy makes him that much more visible. Or what the absence signifies makes the fight or the estrangement more visible to Harry in, in the photograph. Yeah, I just had someone say something to me which made this point so prescient, which is that her brother passed away when he was very young, and she was like, we weren't that close. Hmm. And so I would go days and days without thinking about him. But now that he's dead, I think about him all the time, right? Like, and I'm the girl with the dead yeah. brother, right? And like sometimes those absences, right, like, can just make something so visible all of a sudden. Yeah. The pain of absence is just like, it's a specific kind of pain. I think that's the thing, right? You don't get to take it for granted anymore. Right. <laughs> right? Like, if there's no fight and Percy's in the picture, Harry doesn't right. even notice Percy in right. the picture. It's like just one <laughs> right? other redhead. But ironically, because Percy's not in the picture, to be not noticed, he immediately thinks of Percy. Yeah. Yeah. I love this point about Percy, and I love that you, like, took us to Arthur's office. But I was also thinking more generally about the Ministry of Magic, right? We we see Arthur's office, but we see like the whole ministry. And this is such an invisible place to muggle eyes, right? Like Harry is walking up to it from the tube and he's like, the streets are just getting like less and less impressive. And like, I thought the Ministry of Magic was going to be sort of like a grand thing. And instead, you know, you enter it through this phone booth that like looks broken and the ministry is obviously very intentionally set up so that muggles won't see it but part of what's interesting to me is yes wizards want to stay invisible to muggles but in the meantime muggles have stayed totally invisible to wizards right like mr weasley doesn't understand how to use british currency he you know like doesn't know how to dress like a muggle. He doesn't, right, like, 
they really live among each other. They are staying in London at Grimald Place. They have muggle neighbors on either side of them. <laughs> it's five tube stops away, the Ministry of Magic. This is not like far that they travel. And yet there's just like such segregation and a lack of visibility. And it doesn't seem dramatic to me. Like that feels true to me in a lot of ways. Yeah. There was just a study that came out that Applebee's and Olive Garden, these like chain restaurants, are places where people from different backgrounds and different beliefs, right? Like Democrat, Republican, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different racial backgrounds. Those are the public places in which they are most likely to overlap and meet. It is not your local park. It is not your local library. It is not the baseball team or your church. We are so segregated that even our public spaces are segregated. So it is actually these like private restaurants where you can stay insular, right? Like you're eating with your family. You're not talking to the people who are different from you at the next table where we are most likely to be in the same space as people who are different than us. So like I read this chapter and I was like, this actually feels right to me that muggles and wizards are like in the same city, on the same block, next door neighbors and totally invisible to one another. I mean, there's so much going on with visibility and invisibility with respect to the Ministry of Magic, right? Which is hiding in plain sight. It's not even hiding in plain sight. It's hiding. It's underground, right? But the the entrance, the visitor's entrance, which is, as you noted, this broken down phone booth that is there for every muggle to see, but the muggles won't see it because they would never imagine that it's actually an entrance to a, a secret place. The other thing that everything you just said got me thinking about was how hyper-visibility is a form of invisibility as well, right? Like, Arthur is paying so much attention to muggle stuff, right? He is fascinated by muggle culture, muggle practices, but his fascination with these muggle items, although affirmative and positive, is also like distancing, right? Like, oh, look at those muggles. They're so ingenious, right? And th there's a way in which his affection for muggles and for muggle practices is objectifying, right? He's reducing them to those practices, to those techniques, to their ingenuity, rather than actually paying attention to the people around him. I also just got back from a trip. I was in Japan for part of the summer. And, you know, there were some times I was in Japanese train stations when I bet I looked kind of like Arthur Weasley, like they have a very sophisticated train station in Japan. It's much better than the Boston, anything we have in, in Boston. And I spent a lot of time just kind of looking up at maps and marveling and looking around. And I'm sure I was hyper visible, not only because I'm taller than the average Japanese person, but also because commuters don't look at maps. Yeah. Right. They don't. <laughs> they're not constantly trying to check and listen for the announcements. They just do their thing. Yeah, but, but there's also the way in which I think in this journey where they're trying to be inconspicuous and where Harry's exchanging the money so it doesn't draw attention, that fact itself draws some attention. Yeah, and to your point about Arthur, you know, sort of being affectionate in such a way that he's objectifying muggles, I'm thinking of a philosopher who I'm pretty sure you introduced me to, Matt, Edith Stein, who's now St. Teresa Benedicta. But, you know, she had this theory of empathy as being a form of erasure, right? That if you're empathizing with someone, what you're actually doing is projecting yourself onto them. And I think it's the same thing with a certain kind of fandom. You know, there's been a lot of celebration this year over Taylor Swift, and I think she's amazing and what she's accomplished is amazing. I will say that, like, I find it much easier when people are a huge fan of her songs and do close reading of her songs. And I'm a lot less easy when 
people feel a closeness to Taylor Swift, right? There is this yeah. affection and worshiping that is necessarily objectifying. I mean, what you're saying is like the person that we know best is always ourselves and that we see best is always ourselves. And so we have to always be aware of the possibility that what we think we see in another person is just a version of ourselves. Yeah. And so, of course, we think when we feel affectionately towards someone, what we are doing is seeing them and that that is a gift. I am seeing you in a positive light because I adore you. But actually, right, like what Arthur is doing is 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 minimizing muggles. Yeah. I don't feel cute that we have come up with trains. It doesn't. I'm not like, aren't we cute that we did that? It's insulting. Yeah, I'm not super offended, right? And there are worse, there are far worse forms of objectification. But, you know, along the theme of visibility and invisibility, which goes along with it, we're just trying to think about how, from your story, right? How, how do the ways we see and the way we encounter others help us to see or not see the things that are truly important, right? And I think there's times when Arthur is so fascinated by Muggle ingenuity that he's not actually paying attention to basic things like his neighbors or how to use the money. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is Me Undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some Me Undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of Me Undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL. 
guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh-so-comfy, making it ideal for all-day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order, plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off, plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. You know, I think this idea about visibility and invisibility, how we see others, all this also factors into the way Harry is seen in this chapter, how visible he is. I mean, the chapter begins with Molly, who's, you know, a de facto mother figure for him throughout the series, but also especially maybe in this chapter and some of the surrounding chapters. And she just said recently, I'm as good as his mother. Ugh. As good as his mother. That's right. Yeah. That's right. She launders his clothes and gets them pressed and lays them out on his bed before he wakes up in the morning because he has a hearing today and she wants to make sure that his appearance is appropriate for hearing, right? At breakfast, the the text makes a point of talking about how Harry feels like water or something cool and cold on the back of his neck and he thinks maybe he's getting another disillusionment charm, speaking of invisibility, but it's not. It's it's Molly has wet a comb and is trying to pull his hair into some order Interesting, too, because like what he thought is that it was a disillusionment charm, which is the way he was made invisible before. And what Molly is doing is trying to make Harry appear before Amelia Bones in as positive a light as possible. She's also manipulating his appearance the same way Matt I. Moody was before. And then in other situations, too, like when they actually arrive at the ministry, everyone, you know, it's like a lot of workplaces, like a lot of big workplaces in the lobby and at the entrance, everyone's got their attention on their own situation. They're not paying attention to the other people walking around. And no one knows that Arthur is walking with Harry Potter. And I think that's the way Arthur wants it to be until Harry has to weigh his wand. And just for a fleeting moment, Eric, the security guard there, notices the scar, notices who it is. And then Arthur quickly hustles Harry away. These moments of visibility and invisibility, especially with Harry, I think, uh, show up throughout this chapter. And also, of course, this is actually a theme of Harry throughout the series, right? Like the fact that he is known as the boy who lived rather than known in his full self by so many around him. I think that's maybe one of the functions metaphorically that the invisibility cloak serves for him. And that's something that he uses, obviously, throughout the series. Harry's visibility, how people see too much or too little of him, feel like they know more about him when they actually know less. All this stuff is is at play. And we have some good examples of it in this chapter. Matt, I'm wondering what you think of this, though. Is Molly trying to make him visible as, like, well-behaved? Or is what she's actually trying to do is make him invisible by making him look like any other clean-cut, white, middle-class boy, right? I feel like there is a default body that we imagine as a citizen, right? And like as what a good citizen looks like and what a good citizen's hair looks like. And so Molly is actually, I mean, with with the right intentions, right? Like, but yeah. what Molly is trying to do is make him as close to that default idea of what a good citizen looks yeah. like to make him invisible and make him not memorable and just seem like a good guy who's stuck in a bad situation and so had to do some magic. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's certain parts of him that she wants to be 
especially visible to the people who will be looking upon him. Yeah. Right. And that's what she's tailoring. One thing that surprised me was I think I read the chapter too quickly the first time I read through and I realized I was wrong is when I first was, you know, compiling notes for this and thinking about the chapter, I thought that she pressed like a suit for him, Mm. like court clothes. Yeah. Right. Because that's what we do in at least American jurisprudence. You usually show up in clothes that are nice and you look like you're ready to go to work, but not not super fancy because you don't want to call attention to yourself for in, in the wrong way, right. right? You're trying to present yourself as as a productive citizen, whatever that means. And I went back and read and what she pressed was his T-shirt and jeans. Yeah. <laughs> right? And that made me wonder, it's like, oh, I'm, I also want him to appear to be a child, which is what he is. Mm. And so he's going to be presentable, but also young, but also hair combed because he cares about this. But right, like certain, we were trying to communicate or make visible certain traits of Harry before these folks. Because those traits are the ones we want them to be paying attention to or to be most visible to them. I was thinking while reading this, I noticed that it wasn't a suit. And I was like, well, that makes sense. The Dursleys wouldn't have bought Harry a suit. And then I was like, oh, I guess it also makes sense that he's not in his robe because he's walking the streets of London. But Molly could have pressed a robe and had them pack a robe. She (laughs) wants this idea of him as a kid who was raised by muggles and therefore doesn't know the laws and like has plausible deniability and also good reason for doing this. She's, she is trying to make, oh, she's so smart. She's sending him off to like present himself in a certain way to Amelia Bones. She wants him to, to look innocent. Yeah. Right. That's, that's, that's the look she's going for. That's right. Yeah. There is one last place that I feel like we have to talk about visibility in this chapter, and that is this statue in the middle of the Ministry of Magic. It is described as being like a wizard on top and then a witch under him, and then all of these magical creatures sort of looking up at them, right? And, you know, I was just walking around a lot of cities, and it was really interesting to me in walking around all these cities in a way that I just like, I don't walk around my home city, right? I don't go to the touristy parts of town in Boston. My my life isn't there. But when you're a visitor, like those are often the parts of town that you're walking through. And it's fascinating to me how strong of a reaction I had to some monuments, how some were like very touching to me. And then also I was like, why are there so many monuments to like great warriors? Why are we so proud of war? And, you know, how few women or like it's always fictional women. I was in Copenhagen and the only statue of a woman I saw was the statue of the Little Mermaid, which is actually an honor to Hans Christian Andersen. And yeah, I was thinking about it is visible. Its purpose is to be visible. And what it shows us is the invisible biases that we walk around with all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's the present trying to lift up a particular moment in the past and make it visible, which necessarily means not lifting up all the other moments or all the other people, right? And so whatever you monumentalize, by extension, you're not remembering, not paying attention to, not seeing all those other things. I mean, this is, you know, when we think about the Confederate monuments that have been thankfully coming down, some of them at least, in the last few years, it's not just who you remember, it's also who you're choosing not to remember by making this your preferred memory, right? Right. And I think, you know, you see that in this statue, right? I mean, we don't, you and I, and I in particular, maybe, I don't know a lot about the the history of, of wizards. I didn't take Professor Bin's class, <laughs> right? But this is a particular version of wizards' relation to the rest of the world, 
right? Which does not lift up or acknowledge or make visible other ways of telling the story. Yeah. There aren't giants in this statue. There aren't, right? Like, there aren't any mm. number yeah, of other of creatures in this statue. Trolls. Yeah, yeah. werewolves. Yeah. And the creatures that are of less central play in the statue are all looking adoringly at the witch and wizard. It's just really interesting. I I hadn't remembered how oppressive this statue is. I think about the statue that we see in the Ministry of Magic in book seven as like being this right. like huge criticism of a fascist state. But I actually think that right. this is a great example of like in critique of what, you know, a liberal democracy and just like its failures. Yeah. I mean, that's the shocking thing, right? Is that this statue and the book seven statue are different in degree, right? right. Like they're saying versions of the same thing just with pretty significantly different emphasis, but it's a difference of emphasis, not of a, it's not like a different pr perspective on the world or approach to the relations between these creatures. Yeah, absolutely. So Matt, we are doing Chavruta this week, the Jewish rabbinical practice of conversation around a text. And I will guide us through this process. The way it goes, you know, if I were to turn this into a very short poem of instructions is question, answer, discussion, question, answer, discussion, except that we provide our own answers. The question asker provides the first answer. So my question for you is, is there a real way that Tonks looks like a base way that she is supposed to look. I ask this because we have seen her with violet hair and with pink hair in the past. And um, we've seen her entertain Hermione and Jenny with her skills as a metamorphagus. And then in this chapter, we know that she has blonde curly hair. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. She's an aura. What a gift. She's on like the night watch and having watched like a lot of spy movies. I'm like, she doesn't need to wear a wig or like change her appearance with any like prosthetic. She can just like go around and change her appearance. But then I know later in the books and in, in book six, when she is grieving and is sad about Lupin, she's like described as having like mousy brown hair and right like in this particular way. And I have always read that version of Tonks, the book six Tonks, as the way that Tonks quote unquote actually looks. And that usually she's like playing with that, but that when she's like sad and not in a playful mood, she like, or like doesn't have a motivation for her metamorphagus state. Like that is how she quote unquote looks. But now I'm like, I think Tonks, kind of like a boggart, like doesn't have a base state of look. And then this is like this beautiful form of like self-creation. You know, I, I, I feel like we find out that as a baby, she immediately started changing. Right. And we know that like all babies start changing. And I, anyway, I suddenly was like, oh, Tonks doesn't have blonde curly hair 
as something different from how she looks. This is just one of the many ways she looks. And she looks all these different ways. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think you're right. Basically, in the answer you arrived at. But I would say that's the real way. What's real about her is whatever's in front of you, right? Like, I I think that the trick is thinking there's some original or base or fundamental, which is more real than what's really in front of you. When actually what's really in front of you is what's real, right? And I think this is not true only of a person like Tonks who can change her appearance at will. I think this is true of anybody, right? Like, I mean, I I don't look like I did when I was five. Why do... (laughs) Right? Like, I look very different. Change is just part of who we are. I think we try to assert a continuity of physical identity across time and space, but we know those things are malleable and change, right? Yeah, and I think that the problem is that we think, oh, real must mean more basic or something hiding behind the thing which we see when actually the thing that a person shows us is real and we should just right and that's what tonks is showing us tonks is showing us who she really is whenever whenever she appears right yeah she's someone who chooses to mostly look the same on a day-to-day basis so that she's legible to the people who she cares about and they can recognize her and like that's beautiful that's a choice that she's making she can look like whatever she wants and she's like no i want to look consistent enough i want to change my hair and like maybe play with my nose and whatever but i want to look consistent enough so that Ginny will recognize me and like come and give me a hug when i walk through the door we're not just getting information about her appearance but we're getting information about her character, who she is, based on her relationship yeah. with her metamorphism skills. Right. And that's, I mean, that is what's real, right? Like that. Right. The continuity of relationships, being legible to others, all those things are real. But the, the changes she makes and how she changes, those are just, that's part of her and part of who she really is, right? Yeah. What question do you have in response? So here's my question in response then, Vanessa, because you introduced a really important term and I think a really important way to think about this, which is like this idea of being recognizable to other people, being legible to other people. So like, I guess one follow-up question I might have would be like, what are the limits of this? Are there limits? Like, is there a point at which you become unrecognizable to the people around you where something is lost? And I think the answer is maybe no, (laughs) because I think if Tonks became unrecognizable to Harry, she would just say, psst, Harry. It's me, Tonks. Right. And Harry'd be like, oh, hey, Tonks, there you are. And then she would be recognizable to him immediately again because, again, what's real about her is the relationship, not the appearance. So I think the answer is no. As long as the person wants to be recognized, they can take the acts to be recognized. And if the other is willing to recognize them, then it's there. And I think that's especially true in the wizarding world in a way that I'm trying to think, I think I might wish was truer in the muggle world, right? There's this, because of Polyjuice Potion Mm. and the ability to change your appearance so easily, Hermione makes Harry completely unrecognizable in book seven, you know, by like having his face look like he got stung by a lot of bees, right? Like there are a lot of ways to very quickly change your appearance in the magical world. And so there are all these other ways that people try to recognize each other. We saw this earlier in the book where Harry had to like explain what his Patronus was in order for Lupin to agree that that is in fact Harry. Yep. I love that idea and that we should all expand what it means to sort of like look like ourselves. I'm really playing with this, this idea of like never commenting on someone's appearance ever in my life. Never saying to someone, you look great because the implication is that they don't usually, you know, like yeah. 
I always want to acknowledge when someone puts some effort into something, right? Like into anything, like you worked hard on this meal. Thank you. You know, but I think creating a lot of space to know that people's appearances do change and like for all sorts of reasons in the best case scenario, we're going to age and change, you know, I think Tonks is great because it ha- she has to be such a great practice in not commenting. It's just like, there's Tonks again. Of course, she looks different than she yeah. did yesterday. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for this great Havruta. I love Tonks, man. Thank you. She's yeah, so Tonks cool. Is cool. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, everybody. I'm dropping into your feed to let you know that starting June 23rd, you are invited to a class called Discovering Your Own Patron Saints, a guided workshop with Natalie Folkerts. In this six-session class, you will explore beloved characters from literature who've jumped off the page and made their way into the moral fabric of your life. The first week of this class, you're going to explore what we mean by patron saints, and then each subsequent week will be devoted to a different value, wonder, imagination, grief, and courage. If you are seeking spiritual guidance outside of the constraints of formal religion, if you are someone who finishes a novel and feels like you have said goodbye to new friends, then this class is for you. Register before the first class on June 23rd by going to notsorryworks.com. That's N-O-T-S-O-R-R-Y-W-O-R-K-S dot com. This week's voicemail is from Grace, and Grace recorded this at our summer camp. In book five, I would like to offer a blessing for anyone who notices the scars forming on Harry's hand as a result of his painful and horrifying detentions with Umbridge. I imagine there were probably unmentioned characters, perhaps those who sat next to Harry in classes or during meals, who saw the scars but weren't sure if or how to address them. Hermione and Ron eventually do notice the scars and do try to help Harry, But in addition to blessing the two of them, I also want to bless the people that weren't close friends with Harry who noticed, because I think it is often difficult to recognize pain and violence for what it truly is. And in our struggle to acknowledge and define it, we often unwittingly allow suffering to continue. I bless these observers for the act of noticing, for the confusion, confliction, and fear they may have felt as a result, And I hope that they, and all of us, may take this experience as an opportunity to learn how to engage with those feelings in order to better care for all those around us. 
May we all find graceful ways to ask each other the hard questions that need to be asked and to respond to the answers with openness and compassion. Grace, it's like you heard our conversation because I think that your blessing is such a great asterisk on what Matt and I were talking about when we were discussing tonks, which is not commenting on someone's appearance isn't the same as not noticing if something is going on with them that raises some sort of concerns for you. And that being curious about that is so different than being like, hey, your hair looks different, right? Yeah. And so I'm I'm so grateful for this blessing and and for you helping to sort of refine the point that I was trying to make at the end of our Havruta. Yeah, thank you, Grace. I'm also just really aware of how like your voice memo just sheds light on how insidious like violence is and how sinister it is. Like it it not only harms the person who's harmed, obviously, but but it isolates that person. Folks that who might see the scars, they start to feel guilty for not saying something or not knowing what to say or start questioning. And yeah, it's violence is insidious. It it infects and hurts not just the person who's hurt, although it obviously hurts them. It also it makes relationships difficult and complicated. It makes solidarity complicated. It makes standing up complicated. It doesn't give us a reason not to do those things, but it makes it hard. So thanks, Grace, for that reminder, and thanks for the resolve with which you finished your blessing. I hope we all can share it. Now is the time in the episode when we remember those in our community who have been loved and lost. Cindy Simmons, a fighter, mother, daughter, and aunt. Rick Carlson, 65, was beloved by many and curious to the end. Mary Nichols, 67, a matriarch, scholar, and troll friend. George Pringle, 84, a beloved husband, father, and granddad. A jiver, singer, whistler, and fixer of everything. The most handsome granddad there ever was. Let light perpetual shine upon them. Who are you blessing this week, Vanessa? I want to continue my blessing for Molly Weasley, which is just that not only is she working so hard, you know, making food, Harry walks through the door at five o'clock in the morning into the kitchen and Molly just goes, breakfast, right? Like she sees a child and she's like, I must feed this child. But this food isn't just like perfunctory food. It is food that is like giving great joy. Arthur invites Kingsley over for dinner and he's like, you gotta come over. Molly's making her meatballs. And like implied is like Molly's meatballs are like famously special meatballs. I want to bless Molly for all of this invisible labor, all of this cooking that there isn't a monument for and that she is not only nourishing people, but is bringing just like delight and joy to their lives. What about you, Matt? I would like to bless Perkins, who is... Arthur's co-worker in the Department for the Misuse of Muggle Artifacts. I guess I just, there was something endearing about the way Perkins like stumbles in in a huff and is panicked about not getting this message. Because the thing is, is Harry is not work, right? That Harry is not Perkins' job and Harry's hearing is not Perkins' job. But 
Perkins cares about his coworker and knows this is important to his coworker. So when he gets the message, yeah. he runs around the place trying to get an owl to Arthur. And when he comes back, he tells him exactly what to do. And you can see he's flustered and, and concerned, not because it's a task that he has to do for his job, but just because his friend and coworker, it's important to him. And that's that's the kind of coworkers all of us deserve. So good work, Perkins. I know. Blessings to all of you good coworkers out there. Next week, we'll be reading Book 5, Chapter 8, The Hearing, through the theme of tension. And Casper Terkyle, the wonderful storyteller, will be telling us a story. Matt, a few reminders before we give our thanks. We are in the middle of our big Patreon push. We are looking for 200 new patrons. We've shaken up our perks and our tiers. You should go to patreon.com slash Text and learn more about becoming a Patreon supporter. We would really appreciate it. Also coming up is our National Novel Writing Month Romance Writing Class. So if you're interested in that, go to NotSorryWorks.com. We also have a bunch of pilgrimages, like so many great pilgrimages coming up. You can find out more about that at NotSorryWorks.com as well. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Caitlin Hoffmeister. We are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas, and our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. We are distributed by 8Cast. Thanks this week to Grace for their voice memo and for coming to camp. To Laura Glass, Ariana Nettleman, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Willison, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Casper Turkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of those they have loved and lost this week. And you can always know it's Tonks the same way you would always know it was me, which is that she's like always spilling and knocking into things. <laughs> That's right. You'll always know it's me if there's a coffee stain on my shirt. No matter what else is true.